0: The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show, all you happy warriors, you heroic men enduring the scorching days of summer and the frigid days of winter going to work early every morning regardless of the weather, taking care of business and doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper, instead you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those You are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You are the army of the righteous. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against those hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers have built. The barbarians know That even after they destroy the civilization that you built, as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will live better than in anything they could ever have built themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you beautiful and brave women resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow. You gorgeously courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical, yes, You men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and have done all this, yes, you are the natural audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience that I devotedly serve. Now, you've heard me define your status as happy warriors in those terms before. I've defined it as those of us who delight in fighting against the entropy of our lives. We delight in defeating the resistance that the universe places in our path towards achievement and success. That's what makes us happy warriors. But today, today I want to build on that a little and demand just a little more from every happy warrior among you. I always speak of being your rabbi, revealing how the world really works. But the truth is that it is easy to enjoy that slogan while ignoring its meaning. You see... It is usually painful to face how the world really works. It really is. It doesn't come easy. You know why? Because we are all susceptible to idolatry. And you will find it referred to constantly throughout Scripture. Because it is true. It's not just bowing down to a shape or an object or a tree. No, that's primitive. The real idolatry referred to in the Bible is the idolatry to an illusion. It's an idolatry towards a view of reality. That is not how the world really works. It's confusing the way you wish the world worked with how the world really does work. That is idolatry. It is enormously seductive. And accepting and adapting to how the world really does work is very difficult. It can be painful. It usually is because it requires the shattering of our illusions and we love our illusions we are very attached to our illusions it is our illusions that provide us with a sense of security a sense of belonging a sense that we are not alienated from the world but we are happily and contentedly part of it and so what happens is that when somebody is asking me something or listening to me and I shatter an illusion, well, it's so painful. You know, Imagine you're a guy believing that, oh, you have a right to a job. You have a right to medical care. You have a right to housing. You have a right to an ice cream cone for breakfast every day. Well, that is just not how the world really works. And so it is so painful for you to face this very necessary adjustment to your attitude that you end up shooting the messenger. That would be me. Imagine you're a married woman and you feel you no longer need to worry about your appearance well that's not how the world really works and you react angrily towards me because I am suggesting the unthinkable that although your husband loves you how you look really matters to him well of course you want to shoot me imagine you're a single guy and you feel that a woman should care only about your sparkling personality and not at all about your bank account. Well, again, that is not how the world really works. A woman would be a very poor excuse of a woman, not to mention a foolish little ninny, if all she cared about was your sparkling personality and your sense of humor. Oh, and how well you dress but be completely indifferent to your bank account. That would be a really silly woman. That's just not how the world really works. So if you're a video game playing slacker, living in your parents' basement, naturally you resent me suggesting that your dating options are distinctly limited. Imagine you're a single guy and you talk your girlfriend into agreeing you won't have kids after you marry and then you later expect her to happily stick to that agreement well that is an illusion that's not how the world really works and you really do not want to hear me letting you know that that little life plan you think you've worked out is not going to play out the way you think it is you're a single woman, imagine, and you feel that a guy telling you that he loves you. Oh, I love you. And you're the first girl I've ever said that to. I really love you. Wow, listen to me. I'm opening up emotionally. I've never done this before. Yes, I love you. Listen to me. Well, you think that that little declaration actually means something and i know it's very painful for you to hear that it means pretty much zero and that that's not how the world really works or imagine you're a married guy welcoming your first baby and you are encouraging no you're nudging yeah you're cajoling yeah Come on, let's be honest. You're pressuring your wife to cut her maternity leave short and return to work. Since, after all, didn't the two of you agree that you would try to build up a nest egg? Well, you have no idea of how the world really works. And what is more, you are not going to be happy finding out. Discovering how the world really works is almost always difficult, often unpleasant, frequently painful. And that is why so many people feel much more comfortable as God-rejecting secularists. You see, because here's one of the huge problems with God. See, God forces you to hear, understand, and ultimately become comfortable with how the world really works. So I really understand secularists scurrying for refuge under the shelter of secularism. Secularism will take care of you. Secularism will keep the boogeymen away from you in the dark. Secularism will let you sleep, the sleep of the righteous, because you got no worries. It is so easy to be a secularist. It is so much more morally challenging to be a God-fearing, Bible-believing, religious Christian or Jew. And, uh, and so when people choose secularism... Uh, I want you to know I'm sympathetic, I really understand, and you've heard me say many times that I welcome the many secularists that I know listen to this show, because it's got to be uncomfortable at times. So hats off to you who are able to tolerate the discomfort of hearing me say things you really don't want to hear and things you really do not want to believe might be true, but if you're even able to have the intellectual openness to hear them, well, hats off to you. And I've got to tell you that as hard as this is going to be for many of you to wrap yourselves around, I have to tell you that the age of materialism is dead. The age of secularism is yesterday. It's not today and tomorrow. Secularism has spent, well, it's a a couple of centuries now, attempting to explain everything about life in terms of physical and materialistic phenomena and physical and materialistic explanations. But... Welcome to the present, because secularism is not the future. It's not even the present. Secularism is part of a tired, worn-out yesterday. Yesterday, when secularism seemed to be oh the wave of the future, and uh, and this is you know this is going back two hundred years, a little bit more even, uh, when secularism began. Oh, everyone thought they were so smart, rejecting the faith of their dads and the dogma of their moms. And they were only going to accept the reality of things they could see and touch and measure. Oh, they seemed so very modern and so with it. And uh, their progeny, the Western intellectuals, ended up developing models in biology, in social science, uh, in physics, in economics, all intended – well, I shouldn't say physics. Let me take that out – to explain all of human behavior. And so whether it was economists uh, or whether it was Karl Marx, everybody worked out some kind of theory, profit maximization – uh, class struggle, um, race, gender—all of these things. Uh, professors of international affairs used to draw up game theories to try and understand the dynamic between different nations. And and look, I mean, they, they were not w- without success. They were not entirely a waste of time. Um, the State Department and the CIA in the American government used these models to shape foreign policy. But they didn't always work, and they began to fail ever more frequently because these materialistic and deterministic explanations simply don't account for religious impulses, for ideas based on faith, because religious enthusiasm cannot be metricated. It cannot be quantified. You can't do that. Uh, You cannot do a mathematical equation to explain the religious motivation of a human being. I just got back from one of the most Uh, pleasant and delightful speaking trips, and I I do a lot of these, as you know, and I love the opportunity to teach ancient Jewish wisdom. Well, uh, the Ghanaian uh, government, along with uh, people and organizations and churches, uh, set up an international business conference um, a little over a week ago in Accra, Ghana, And uh, I was brought out to headline that and to uh, speak and teach. And in um, eight, seven days in Ghana, I think I spoke eight times, if I'm not mistaken, at least. And it was absolutely delightful, I have to tell you. Um, For one thing, uh, I loved the people I met. Now, look, there's... 25, 30 million people in Ghana, right? Um, how many did I meet? I probably, in, in terms, I saw, how many did I see? I probably saw, if you add up all my live audiences, I probably saw 30, 000, a little over 30,000 people. But I didn't meet that many people. How many people did I actually meet? Uh, probably a little over 100. But I saw the faces of thousands of people. And I saw the faces of even more people in the streets and in the offices and in the government buildings and at Parliament. Uh, I really like these people are open and friendly and good. I loved the people in Ghana. I really did. Uh, I, I found myself unexpectedly moved emotionally by some of the uh, the friendships that I felt forming very quickly. Um, it was it was terrific. Now. In addition to that, and you'll see why I mention this now, uh, in addition to that, uh, it was pretty obvious to me that the Christian population of Ghana uh, constituted a significant proportion of the population. As a matter of fact, I discovered 70%. That's right. 70% of Ghanaians are Christian. It's, It's really something, and you can feel it, and you can see it. It has made the people rather remarkable. It really has. It's fascinating. Now, Christianity is not only thriving throughout Ghana, but actually throughout Africa. Uh, the Christian population was estimated to be about uh, 10 million people in 1900. Now we're just after the year 2000, and it's currently about 500 million. About half a billion people in Africa are Christian. The rate of growth, if, it's, if we extrapolate to the year 2030, which is only another 10 years, uh, it's expected to be three quarters of a billion, 750 million people. To put that into perspective, the total population of Africa is one and a quarter billion. And so uh, Christianity is now overtaking Muslim Islam. Um, it used to be that about uh, it used to be about when I say used to years ago it was about forty percent Christian, forty-five percent Islam. It's now the other way around. It's now forty-five percent uh, Christian, maybe forty percent Islam, and then the the remainder um, various African. Uh, indigenous uh, belief systems. But, uh, But there it is. It's absolutely amazing. And it is not possible, in my view, it is not possible to perform an accurate sociological, economic, or political analysis of Ghana discounting religion. If you are determined to view the world Exclusively as secular, well, then you're never going to understand Ghana, and you probably won't ever understand Africa, uh, let alone the United States of America. By the way, not simply not going to happen. And so, uh, I want you to remember that you heard it here first. Okay, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show is where you first heard the idea articulated that the terms left and right, in political terms, will start meaning less and less. Because the real distinctions that the culture will begin talking about, once the last dying vestiges of secularism totally evaporate away, the real distinction is not going to be between people of the left and people of the right or liberals and conservatives. No. The real distinctions are going to be between those who see Judeo-Christian biblical values as absolutely vital for our nation's survival, and on the other hand, those who consider Judeo-Christian biblical values to be nothing but obstructions to progress. That is the division. And I think we're getting there fairly quickly. In fact, to get there even a little more quickly, I think I'm going to start a new organization called Secularists Anonymous. Um, it's a 12-step program, you know, like like other 12-step programs, and I'm certainly going to borrow from the excellent work of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and I'm going to make the first two steps of Secularists Anonymous is we admit we were powerless over secularism, that our lives had become unmanageable because secularism controlled our vision of reality. That's step one. Uh, all you secularists who want to become charter members of my new organization, Secularists Anonymous, um, you, you just let me know. You know, go to my website, rabbi com. Um, You want to hear step two in my 12-step program for former secularists, for secularists trying to outgrow their sad and terrible handicap that makes their lives so much less than they could be. Um, Here it is. We now believe that a power greater than ourselves, namely the God of the Bible, could help restore us to sanity. That is step two of Secularists' Anonymous 12-step program. And those of you who need to join, well, I'll give you the remaining ten. Um, you know, um, there are, every now and again, there are really useful movies that provide magnificent cultural metaphors for where we are or for things we need to understand And I'm going back to a 1999 film that Warner Brothers put out called The Matrix. You want to understand secularism? Go and watch The Matrix. That's secularism. And so what you need to do is you need to take a red pill, deal with reality. There's no question about it. It's painful and challenging. But ultimately, because it is true and fulfilling, it'll produce happiness. There's a line in The uh, Matrix. Uh, One of the characters, Morpheus, is speaking to Neo. And what he says to him is, Neo, have you ever had a dream? A dream that you were so sure was real? well what if you are unable to wake from that dream how would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world you see it's not only almost idolatry it is idolatry only a secularist can believe that artificial intelligence or machines will take over the world right only people only secularists who believe that human beings are nothing but sophisticated animals, secularists who believe that a human being is nothing more than a cunning arrangement of molecules of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and phosphorus and potassium and iron, people, secularists, who believe that, well, naturally, the natural inevitable outcome of their wrong-headed grounding belief is that, well, I guess if animals don't take over the world, then machines will. Only a secularist can believe that ultimately what lies ahead of us is nothing but hopelessness and destruction, unless the government steps in. Climate change! That's right. Secularists talk themselves into the idea that religion is the refuge of those with unfulfilled financial and economic ambitions. I'm sure you've heard them all the time. You may even have fallen victim yourself to this dogma of secularism. Oh, those poor Arabs, they turned to radical Islam out of poverty and desperation. Look, I don't think you need me to remind you that neither Mohammed Atta of 9-11 notoriety nor Osama bin Laden were poor or oppressed. They both came from wealthy and privileged families. And uh, do you remember the four guys who killed more than 50 Londoners and injured over 700 people. You know, those four guys, Muhammad Sadiq Khan, Shehzad Khan Weir, Jermaine Lindsay, and Hasib Hussein, uh, by the way, the uh, three of them with Arab names were, uh, or, or, or at least uh, Islamic sounding names, were British born guys, right? Their parents were immigrants from Pakistan they were Muslim immigrants from Pakistan but these three guys were British born Um, Jermaine Lindsay was born in Jamaica and converted to Islam and these four guys on the 7th of July in 2005 decided to murder as many Londoners as they possibly could and I'm afraid they, they did a very good job of it these guys not a one of them oppressed and in poverty, all living middle-class and upper-middle-class lifestyles. They're all all were doing just fine. So um, please, on your journey away from secularism, please banish the idea that somehow religion is the refuge of the failed financially ambitious. It's not true. Um, Here's another way to know that you're a secularist, and that is you disdain to judge between religions. You dump them all into one basket of deplorables, to borrow a phrase from Hillary. By the way, uh, throughout the campaign in 2015 and 2016, um, you may not be aware of this, but Hillary was using that phrase everywhere – She was using it in fancy parties on Long Island, in the Hamptons. She was using it in Manhattan on the Upper East Side, in Beverly Hills. And in every fancy party, everybody burst out laughing. And so she thought that this phrase, you know, that Trump supporters were all in a basket of deplorables, she thought it was very funny and very effective. And uh, she decided to use it in a speech on Wall Street. And it so turned out that that speech had a number of people there who were actually deplorables. And it was from there that it got out and hit the news. And wise people on her campaign from that moment said, it's all over. And sure enough, it was. Um, Here's another thing about secularists. Secularists, and look, I feel sorry for secularists. Please, please. Do not hear in my voice any uh, contempt. Do not hear any mocking because I I have compassion for secularists. I really do. They are living in an illusion. They are out of touch with reality. They don't know how the world really works. And I understand they don't want to because it is comfortable where they live. I understand that. I sympathize. I am not a hard, unfeeling man. So, um, one of the things that, another thing I should say, that secularists have always believed, and that is that education and economic progress are incompatible with religion. And so they've always believed that uh, as societies and groups of people have become more educated and are moving up the financial scale, well, that means they will automatically lose all the ancient faith and dogmas of their forefathers and that they will embrace a new world of humanistic wisdom and rational and scientific outlook but religion will increasingly be pushed to the back burner. Well, here's one of the reasons I feel sorry for secularists. It's always painful to have a deeply held belief blowing up in your face. And the truth is that now it is obvious for anybody with eyes in their head that we don't get less religious as we become richer and better educated. It's not happening. We right now in the West, and actually throughout most of the world, we're living through one of the great periods of scientific progress and consequently of wealth creation, right? But at the same time, nobody can deny that we are living through one of the great periods of religious uh, boom! Religious enthusiasm. Uh, needless to say, uh, Islam is a case in point. I mean, wouldn't you have thought that um, that is uh, that Iran, under decades of the Shah, of dramatically increased financial circumstance, and. Vastly increased educational opportunities for men and women. Really, being part of the modern world, wouldn't you have thought that um, Mr. Khomeini, living in Paris and dreaming of a triumphant return to Iran, um, would have been sent packing? He would have been dismissed. Who would have had time for his benighted and primitive brand of ancient Punitive Islam. (laughs) The answer is the whole population of Iran. That's who pretty much. They were perfectly happy to welcome him back. No. Economic progress and education do not have anything to do with getting rid of religion. Doesn't work that way. Uh, In my own uh, brotherhood, um, Orthodox Judaism is growing among young people. Um, I just recently heard um, the uh, uh, the Harvard uh, lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, who is not an Orthodox Jew by any stretch of the imagination, uh, say that Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism are dying away, and only Orthodox Judaism is thriving. Um, I, I was surprised to hear him say that, but He's right, and it's true. Uh, Israel has become much more educated, much more affluent than it was, shall we say, 50 years ago. And the growth of religion in Israel uh, has never been surpassed in the last 70 years. Um, Israel today is far more religious than it was uh, even even 30 years ago. Uh, The growth of Christianity is the most amazing story of all. In the days uh, right after the end of World War II, there were all kinds of articles and books written. I I researched this, by the way, and and you can as well if you wish. Uh, it It was not very difficult. I found so many articles and so many books published Speaking about the end of Christianity, by the way, I'm pretty sure it was Life magazine in this period published a cover story, God is Dead. And it wasn't a particularly provocative or brave thing to say back then because that's kind of how things looked. Well, uh, what's it been? About 60 years since then. And there are now at least 2 billion Christians in the world. Give it another 30 years. At the present rates of growth, extrapolating forwards another 30 years, it'll be 3 billion Christians in the world, which uh, you barely need me to tell you I think would be a very good thing. Um, there, there, There are branches in Judaism that are evangelical in outlook um, that are very distinctive. They they with they they are Orthodox Jews. They would eat in my house. I would eat in their house. We both subscribe to the same rules of biblical dietary rules called kosher. Um, our uh, our prayer service is basically indistinguishable. Uh, but there are certain ways in which they dress, certain aspects of their worship, certain aspects of how they live. Um, that are very distinctive. And so whereas you might or might not recognize me as Jewish, um, if I'm heading out to go sailing and I'm wearing a pair of jeans and a T-shirt and my uh, baseball cap, you know, you might or you might not say, there goes a Jewish man. Probably you wouldn't. But Uh, Many of my friends in some of the sects of Judaism, particularly some of them known as Hasidic, and I, I don't want to take time in today's show delving into what that means, but suffice it to say that it's equivalent in Christianity. The nearest I can come to in Christianity is Pentecostalism. Uh, and I'm speaking only respectfully to both <laughs> both sides, Jewish and Christian. My point is that these uh, Hasidic sects are growing like crazy. They're just, I mean, all of Orthodox Judaism is growing like crazy, but they are growing crazier. They are, they are really expanding. Well, that is also true of Pentecostalism, which when you think about it, it started, you know where it started? well, you I'm sure many of you know. I was fascinated to research this a little bit. It started about a hundred years ago in Los Angeles, California. And uh, in in just about a hundred years, it's now four hundred million Christians on our Pentecostalists, including many many of my friends. I've spoken at many Pentecostal churches, and uh, I enjoy the heightened energy and level of enthusiasm. It's all terrific. Uh, and again, the rate of growth is amazing. Um, you know, give it another twenty five years, and and what are we talking about? Um, a billion Pentecostals? Very possibly. You understand why I say that I, I kind of feel sorry for secularists. It's never fun to be on the losing side of history. So um, it really is time to reject secularism. Um, you just, You don't need it anymore. Take the red pill in matrix terms. Welcome to reality. This is what the future looks like, and only ancient dinosaurs still cling to anti-scientific secular dogma. What am I talking about? Well, if you think about it, anti- anti-science is what for years secularists have been calling religionists like me. Oh, they're, they're anti-science. And I always, you know, I'd protest. And I'd say, what are you talking about? I was an electronics engineer. I've taught physics. You know, I'm really not anti. Oh, you're anti-science. You believe in God. You believe in things you can't see. And, oh, you're anti-science. You know who's anti-science today? Secularists are. What am I talking about? Well, for a start. Uh, if somebody tells me there's no such thing as male and female and that somebody with female genitalia can be a man and um, and somebody with male genitalia can be a woman, as a matter of fact, somebody with male genitalia can compete in athletic and sporting events as a woman, I'd say you are a primitive witch. You're an anti-scientist because any for real scientist knows that every molecule in a human being's body loudly proclaims its sex. You're either male or female. Your chromosomal structure broadcasts it. But if you are a secularist, you can be anti-science, and you can sprout all this nonsense. You know why? Because it's religious dogma. And religious dogma is a matter of belief. It's not a matter of fact. And so the people who are really anti-science today are secularists, voodoo economics. Um, When a uh, a professor at New York State University, whom I've spoken about over the last couple of months on the show, or a uh, nominee, a candidate for nomination as the Democratic presidential uh, nominee for the United States, believes that the government can spend any amount of money because the government can just print money, and nobody says, you are an economic ignoramus. Nobody says that at all. Because secularism has become the new anti-science faith. Secularism lets people say things like that. It's voodoo economics, and it's all in the wonderful world of secularism. Uh, people say, oh the government will pay for this. the government everyone has a right to this and everyone has a right to the government's job to provide this. All of that talk is voodoo economics. It's primitivism. It's sheer ignorance. It's anti-scientific. So I'm afraid there really is no alternative but to recognize that rejection of secularism, is a necessary part of adapting to how the world really works. There's another aspect as well, and that is for women to recognize that there are only four conditions for a woman to be in. And so for... uh, all you women who still do not know how the world really works, I apologize in advance. Please know I am not a sadist. I really take no pleasure whatsoever in inflicting pain. Really not. And so it is not with a sense of mischievous delight that I tell you this. I tell it to you only in my role as mother teresa of reality i'm helping you i'm trying to truly be helpful and part of that requires that in order to function in a happy and fulfilled way in the world in order to live a successful life you kind of have to know how the world really works right it's like it's like a new immigrant to america being invited to play in a baseball game. You don't know the rules. It's going to be – it's not going to be fun. It really isn't. You have to know how the game really works, and that's what I'm talking about. And so uh, with the greatest of respect, ladies, please realize that women can only be in one of the following four statuses or conditions – Number one, single. Number two, married. Number three, divorced. Number four, widowed. That's it. You're one of the above. Single, married, divorced, widowed. That's all there is to it. Well, I hear some of you calling out to me plaintively. But wait, I'm in a relationship. And that's a fifth status. Look, in a relationship might mean something on Facebook, but in the real world it means absolutely nothing at all. Look, it's it's something you just really have to know. Single, married, divorced, or widowed. That's it. Well, I'm somebody's girlfriend. Ladies, that's means less than nothing, as I will shortly explain. But um, let me point something out. Um, Employees, right? Most of us are employees. We do best, and again, this is the way the world really works. I don't expect any of us to like this. I don't like this. But it is how the world really works. Employees do best with a measure of insatisfaction with a measure of insecurity hanging over our heads, don't we? Really, think about it. We do best with a measure of insecurity. Don't believe me? Just take a look and see how things work in places where there is no job insecurity. How about the American public education system? How about post office employees? Permanent security in those two occupations, real happiness. I mean, people like those jobs. They want those jobs. But it doesn't make for happiness because you have no objective measure of your performance. But for the rest of us employees in the real world, keeping our job is a measure of our performance. Having a place, that is a happy-making activity. We deliver most with a measure of insecurity. When we know that our boss, our company, is measuring our performance, watching us, measuring us against others in a similar position, we bring out our best, and you know what? It might feel stressful, it, we might complain about it, but we feel great, because success develops self-respect. Not self-esteem, who, who wants that? But to achieve something real, something that is measured and measurable, something that with, with, with real milestones to it, that's wonderful. And so as painful as it is to confront, the way the world really works is that employees do best with a measure of insecurity hanging over our heads. However... Wives do best with a cocoon of security. It's exactly the opposite. Now, if you didn't know how the world really works, you might have been excused for thinking that a man who keeps his wife constantly guessing as to whether he's going to stay married to her, a man who constantly reminds his wife that he's not sure he wants to stay in this marriage, you might think, he would end up with the best wife imaginable because she's constantly going to be trying her best to please him as women do. But it doesn't work that way. Counterintuitively, wives do best cocooned in an unshakable protective barrier of security. You see... The words in a relationship, the reason they mean nothing is because they provide no security. Girlfriend, what does that mean? Nothing at all. Girlfriend, there's no security in that. In general, smart women crave security. And ladies, if you're not getting it from marriage you quite understandably tend to turn to the government for it. And that's why the very high number of single and divorced women who subscribe and vote for the evil party, right? You know I call the Democrats the evil party and the Republican party. I call the stupid party, unfortunately. Wish it weren't like that. But um, why have you got so many single and divorced women supporting the evil party? Well, it's obvious because they're looking for security. And there are two ways to get security. One is having a terrific husband in a good marriage, and the other one is through government. It's simple, isn't it? And so single and divorced women turn to the government for security. Widowed women, by the way, quite different. Majority of widowed women... Uh, you know what, I, I actually don't have the exact number, but widowed women are far more likely to associate with a stupid party, where single and divorced women are far more likely to associate with the Democratic Party. Why? Because in most cases, and this I do know, in the majority of cases, widows, late husbands, provided for them, whether it was insurance or a business or a paid-off home or whatever it is, but widows had husbands who provided for them, and they do not need government support. Do you get it? That's the difference. Women who are smart seek security, and you do not get it from being, quote, in a relationship, and you certainly do not get it from being anybody's girlfriend, Any boy's girlfriend, I should say. I wouldn't say a man's girlfriend because a man doesn't want a girlfriend. He wants a wife. But if you are a boy's girlfriend, ladies, bail out as quickly as you can. There's no future in that for you at all. Girlfriend means nothing because you are surrendering yourself to a boy for no security in return. Now, I well know, of course, that many girls will say to me in some degree of high dudgeon, I don't need a man for security. I make enough money myself. Um, To which I say, number one, security isn't only about money. It's also emotional, and it's also real-time physical protection. And any woman who then says to me, well, my phone has 911 on autodial. Well, a woman like that is just plain naive because in this day and age in the United States of America, it is perfectly clear that the main function of law enforcement is to apprehend your murderer, not prevent it in the first place. And what is more, Do you know, law enforcement only succeeds in apprehending your murderer about 60% of the time. Today in the United States of America, you murder somebody, you've got about a 40% chance of getting off with it. Uh, That's how many murders are never solved. But um, looking after you ladies, come on, you know that's simply not true. Uh, Let me put it this way. Uh, let's imagine you are some boy's girlfriend, and you're even living with him, and I want you to imagine that there is suddenly a disturbing noise downstairs in the middle of the night that wakes you up. Tell me something. Do you and your boyfriend now quickly play rock, paper, scissors to decide who is going to take the handgun and go downstairs to investigate? I don't think so, right? Right. I think there's not a couple on earth that doesn't know that the guy goes downstairs to investigate. It's because men are hardwired to want to protect their women. That's how it works. And uh, I feel very sorry. I really feel sorry for women who live alone, whether they are single, whether they are divorced, or whether they are widowed. I feel very sorry for them because you do feel more secure with a man in the house you know even even if he is a boyfriend but you do feel more secure it's emotionally there's you, you don't have the you don't have the same vulnerability to the heebie-jeebies of the night there's somebody else there's company that provides you with something very real and then there's also the real security and then finally There is the financial security from being married to a real man in a good marriage. That is the truth, and it is the reality. And uh, needless to say, we don't even have to go into the question of somebody who, a lady who might want a baby, as by the way, far and away most women actually do want to have a child. It's kind of helpful to have financial security along with that, don't you think? And uh, it is very difficult. Now, I understand in the absence of marriage, I totally get why you want government-mandated child care and you want government-mandated maternity leave. I get that because you don't have a husband. You're not in a good marriage. And when you don't have a husband, you turn to the government. You actually marry the government. That's really pretty much what you do. And, uh, and I get it. I get it if you're not married to a good man in a wonderful marriage. You do need some way to take care of yourself while you're expecting a baby. So you ask the government to force your employer to give you maternity leave. I get it. I think it's destructive to everybody. And after you've had the baby, well, somebody's got to look after the baby while you have to get back to work. And so uh, I understand why you vote for the evil party that will make sure that the government forces childcare with all kinds of rules and regulations. And we know exactly who will be paying for all that. That's right. The woman who is married to a good man in a great marriage, yep, she's the one paying for your maternity leave courtesy of the government. And your government mandated childcare through the magic of wealth transfer through taxation. That is how it works. And that's why it is that the very biggest problem for the stupid party in America is the decline in marriage. Because the more single or divorced women there are, the better it is for the Democratic Party. It's as simple as that. Married women in good marriages, <laughs> well, they know. That governments will provide them with security like Amtrak provides quality train service, or like the post office provides quality delivery, well, of anything. <laughs> yeah, right. No, uh, people in the know, people who understand how the world really works, they really feel sorry for people who have to depend on the government. But I understand. If you don't have a marriage to a good man, then um, you have no alternative but to descend on the government with your hand out. I get that. Hand stretched out, I mean, not your hand out. Uh, nothing provides security for a woman like being in a good marriage to a good man. Uh, that is how the world really works. Is that painful for a lot of people to hear? You bet it is i know that and i understand that and believe me as the messenger i really do not want to be shot i really don't want to be but at the same time my job is not to now let's hear it all together come on one two three massage you with warm butter my job is to tell you how the world really works And so, ladies, please, really, if you are some boy's girlfriend, you really need to do something about that. That is really not a good place to be. It's not a real place. In the way the world really works, there is no status of girlfriend. Remember, you are single, you are married, you are divorced, or you are widowed. That's all there is to it. And, and here's the best part. Look, I'm not minimizing the challenges of finding a good man. I'm really not. And in a future show, I plan to discuss where and how to seek him. But being his girlfriend is not the way to find him. Um, it's a really awful word. You should be embarrassed to have any guy, boy, introduce you as, oh, this is she's my girlfriend. This is Barbara. She's my girlfriend. You should run for your life. You should be mortified. You should turn all shades of red if some boy introduces you as his girlfriend. Just listen to the words. Just think about what it really means. It's a terrible word and an even worse reality. You are conveying permanence, To a situation that provides the boyfriend with 90% of what he wants while bestowing upon you, ladies, girlfriends, about 10% of what you really want, which is permanence and security. You're not getting either of them from your boyfriend, commitment that you can count upon that's what you really want deep in your heart don't you are there exceptions of course but when somebody's uh, when a girl says oh i'm single that tells me there's hope tomorrow could be the day because single women meet guys and what's more they can actually meet men that's why the phrase i'm single is tremendously hopeful but the phrase I'm a girlfriend I'm his girlfriend it's sad and pathetic and I would never allow any of my daughters to be that and I'd never advise any young woman never to enter that status or to tolerate it see An important aspect of how the world really works is that life actually begins with marriage. Most women really do know that, but they've been so well indoctrinated and so well trained by male cruelty to keep that quiet and keep it to themselves for fear of frightening him away. Does that sound like a man to you? Nope, me neither. It's only a boy who's frightened away by the sound of the word marriage. To a real man and a real woman, it is the word that signifies the start of your real life. Obviously, ladies, it's got to be with the right man, not a boy, all of whom are wrong for you. Got to be the right man. And the male sex has been severely damaged in the culture wars of the last 50 or 60 years. There's no question about it. But uh, they are there. They absolutely are there. And I know there are going to be some of you guys saying, well, it's just the same for us. It's very hard to find a good woman, and they're few and far between, and they've been down. And it's true, feminism has wreaked havoc and caused a lot of trouble, but um, I want to tell you something, and that is women change much more than men do, and that is why the Cinderella scenario is much more true to life than the peasant who married the princess scenario. You know that story? The princess was out in a carriage one day with her courtiers and and friends and the, uh, the carriage got a flat tire, and out of the forest came this handsome young peasant who was a woodchopper, and he changed the tire, and the two of them fell in love, and the princess married the peasant boy, and they lived happily ever after, and eventually, in due course, she became queen, and he became king, and they all lived happily ever after. Now, children, please go back to the playroom. Okay, that is nonsense, it's not true, never has been, but the Cinderella story of the peasant girl who marries the prince, now that one is true, and uh, I'll just give you, I mean, just one example of that, or I'll give you two examples that are really the same thing, and that is that um, it, again, in today's day, with fear of sexual harassment and me too and all the terrible things going on um, it's been a very bad deal for women because one of the ways that women always elevated themselves in society one of the ways women improved their status was to marry a rich guy to marry an upwardly mobile guy And where did this happen? Well, guess where? The place where you spent more hours of your waking life than anywhere else at work. And so uh, it was not uncommon. And again, by the 60s already with the AMC, I think it was an AMC show, Mad Men, what you already saw then was the corruption of what was going on where men began exploiting the women in the company. But prior to that time, it was very common for men to marry women that were working as secretaries or typists in the company and you just think about the circumstances it's so romantic it's it's almost erotic it's so beautiful right you are um, you're an executive you're in your maybe mid to late 20s you've been working hard uh, you've not been playing around a lot. You've you've really struggled to reach where you're at, and you are now in a position of responsibility and authority in your company. And you're assigned a secretary. And uh, guess what? She's you know 23 years old. She's slim and beautiful, and she spends her day helping you. It is no wonder that in huge number of cases, and uh, you only have to read diaries and real-life stories of life in America uh, in the first half of the 20th century, you know, really up to World War II, uh, and a little bit after that, a little bit, and you'll see how common this was, and pretty soon that former secretary is now Mrs. Smith, or whatever it is, and uh, she's not working. She is at home, Uh, She's having babies. She's uh, taking care of the community. She's doing good things for the neighborhood and for the families. That used to be the inner core, the backbone of American life. That's how that used to be. Uh, Needless to say, uh, I barely have to tell you that there are no real-life examples that I'm aware of where the female executive married the errand boy or married the male secretary, right? It just never happened and still doesn't happen. Uh, One more place where you see the same thing happening is all by way of me showing you that the Cinderella story works. The poet, the peasant and the princess doesn't work, and that is that um, in long-ago days... When all airline stewardesses were young, slender, and beautiful, uh, and I'm sure none of us are even old enough to remember back to those days. And I know, by the way, um, on one of the platforms that this show appears, um, a, a lady, and a very nice lady, took great issue with me uh, for um, what sort of – Man, am I that even – know? how can I be a a married man who even notices that uh, stewardesses are young, slim, and beautiful? Well, uh, they actually are on Etihad Airlines, Emirates Airlines, Singapore Airlines, Virgin Atlantic Airlines, um, but uh, a whole lot less so on American, United, and Delta, just as it happens, uh, for a variety of reasons, but – Back to the story. In the olden days, when stewardesses were not flight attendants or cabin attendants, but they were stewardesses, and they were young, slim, and beautiful, um, when they were able to, they did everything possible to take care of the front cabin, the first-class cabin. You know why? It's not because they were just mixing with a different kind of clientele. It was because it was well known that it led to to marriage that's right well known that's what it was that's exactly what we're talking about so uh, you guys who are saying, well, it's just the same for us. It's hard for us to find good women. Do you know how many cases I know of of a woman that a guy married, and as soon as he married her, that was the end of their sex life, and that was the start of her making his life miserable, and that was the beginning of her beginning to take him to the cleaners, and then she divorced him and got away with all his money. Look, I know these horror stories, but uh, gentlemen... You're probably not going to like this a whole lot when I tell you you have only yourself to blame. Um, nature abhors a vacuum, right? That's a general rule. Um, outer space is a vacuum, and air from our planet would rush into outer space if it weren't being kept here by gravity. Three cheers for gravity. But um, in general, Vacuums um, are, are not stable states. I mean, vacuums want to be filled. And uh, power vacuums are exactly the same. Uh, most women want to be married to a powerful man. Most women do not want a man they can wrap around their little fingers and control. I, I, these, these are real truths that I'm telling you. And what happens is that uh, as men have been damaged over the last 60 years of, um, of cultural deterioration, and I'm speaking particularly in the West and even more particularly in the United States, um, what's happened is that men have lost the ability of, uh, of um, extending power in, in a very good way I'm speaking about. I mean, I'm not talking about tyranny. I'm not talking about bullying and brutality. I'm speaking about quiet, inner, masculine strength. And as men lost that and began to be girlified, women rushed in to the existing vacuum. It's very simple. And, uh, and as I've pointed out in these two examples, women revel in change. Men don't. There is a very good reason. Why throughout biblical literature, throughout the certainly the Hebrew texts, women are compared to the moon while men are compared to the Sun in certain important ways. But one of the ways is the reflection of light. Oh I can just I can just imagine how some women who, who are still secularists must be seething with anger um, at what I'm about to say. But my job is not, To massage you with warm butter, as you well know, Uh, it is to tell you the truth. And the the truth is that um, men have lost the ability to extend and to be powerful. Women miss that very much in men and are taking over. Somebody has to. And that's really exactly what has happened Uh, with a corresponding deterioration in every aspect of marital life, including effective child raising. so, um, So I feel much sorrier for women who are in the process of trying to end their single status and who are wise enough to know that becoming a boy's girlfriend is not the way to do it. And so they're looking for a real man. And I sympathize because I know it isn't easy. They are there, and uh, and we are working at making more of them all the time. But, guys, don't say to me it's just the same for us because we can't find good women as well. Um, a woman is eager and ready, a good woman, to a real woman, to be a moon to your sun. But you've got to be a sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N. You've got to be a sun. And that means that uh, a Cinderella can marry a prince as long as he's a prince. And you'll remember that um, the only fairy tale story where the peasant seems to marry the princess is Aladdin, the wonderful Walt Disney version, the original one I'm thinking of. I don't know about the more modern one. But uh, there I point out that Aladdin is far from a peasant. He exhibits real man qualities. He exhibits real princely qualities uh, in a number of ways, including, you'll remember, the way he treated the, um, the the little orphan boy and girl who looked hungrily at his bread, right? A street rat, as he was termed, um, would simply say to the little orphan boy and girl, go and steal your own bread, but only a prince, takes the bread and gives of it to the orphan boy and the orphan girl. So you know at that point already that Aladdin has to marry the princess because he is a prince in disguise. But um, at any rate, bear in mind that, yes, uh, provided you are enough of a man, my friend, you could marry almost any girl to whom you are sexually attracted, almost any girl that you find beautiful. And she would become your woman of valor. Uh, The last chapter of the book of Proverbs is is what I'm referring to over there. In other words, gentlemen, it really is all up to you. A heavy burden to place on your shoulders, perhaps a burden heavier than the frail shoulders of some of you were designed to bear. I hope not, because that is part of of what it means to be a man. Uh, would there be um, a difficult adjustment period? Of course. Anybody who has a honeymoon first year of marriage, in my view, is probably sweeping issues under the carpet. Right, A newly married man and woman have a lot to work through during that first year, and it's a good year. It's a, it's a year of working those things through, But it's also going to be a year of tears and stress and difficulty and worry. But then you get these things worked out. And all of a sudden, the magical dynamics of a functioning marriage kick in. And you wake up every day thanking the Lord for your spouse, not realizing that your spouse is partially a creature of your own creation. And therein lies much of the magic of marriage. And that is as far as we can go in today's show. I urge you to do us both a favor and go to the website, rabbidaniellappen.com. Communicate with us in the Contact Us uh, tab. Send me a message. You know I read them all. Many of you have had responses from me. Uh, You can also make sure you subscribe to Thought Tools, and you uh, can also go to the store and look for The Gathering Storm, Decoding the Secrets of Noah. And uh, you really want to have a look at this because essentially what it's all about is how to live with the swirling maelstrom of turbulence that swirls around the foundation of your entire existence and build your own ark to make sure that you and your family can sail the stormy waters in tranquility to eventual safety and deliverance. Take a look at the audio program. It's two hours of teaching along with the... Uh, a 16-page study guide. It's called The uh, Gathering Storm, Decoding the Secrets of Noah, and it explains societal decay. It shows the political and cultural significance of uh, today's cultural fight over abortion. I mean, really? Do adults dealing with the political future of the United States of America really have to spend their time devoted to deciding at till what age in the uterus shall little babies be murdered? I mean, really? Yes, absolutely really. If you are mystified by that, you simply don't understand how the world really works. But if you go to rabbi Danielappen.com, you will be able to get for yourself a copy. You can download it immediately of um, the gathering storm decoding the secrets of noah and something you should listen to with your spouse listen to with your family Um, you know what listen to it with your boyfriend or girlfriend if you are in that bad situation preparatory to explaining to them why you are terminating that status one way or the other if you need the courage to make that transition Then you need the audio program, The Gathering Storm, Decoding the Secrets of Noah. And to get that, you go to the webpage, uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, or you can go to youneedarabbi.com, same place, and uh, see you there. Go ahead, get it, be happy, make me happy, all to the good, and um, we will all prosper, succeed and make progress with our lives through sometimes stormy waters. So until next week, my friends, I want to wish you a week of good times with your finances, with your friendships, with your family, and with your faith. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Filling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.